The bombs came from nowhere. Despite relative calm in recent months, on Friday afternoon, Israeli forces conducted airstrikes claiming they were part of a preemptive action after a militant from Palestinian Islamic Jihad was arrested in the West Bank. But with scores of civilians dead, including 15 children, does the excuse hold up to scrutiny? After three days of relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad have drawn a ceasefire. Despite being described as a precise operation to target senior officials in the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or PIJ, it involved launching indiscriminate missile attacks into Gaza, one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Residential buildings were destroyed and civilian areas flattened. Over those three days of missile attacks, 350 Palestinians were injured and 44 were killed, including 15 children. Five young boys aged between 5 and 14 were killed while visiting their grandfather's grave in northern Gaza, and a five-year-old girl was killed in Gaza City. There are 2.3 million Palestinians cloistered within the narrow strip of land. For comparison, Northern Ireland has a population of 1.8 million people and is 38 times the size of the Gaza Strip. So precise operations by bomb and missile are impossible. Israel justified the operation by claiming it was a preemptive move intended to thwart the planned rocket attacks by the PIJ. That means they attacked Gaza before any attacks had been launched against Israel. Unsurprisingly, the Israeli attack led to retaliatory missile attacks by the PIJ, though most were felled by Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. In Israel, there were no casualties other than light injuries from debris, and Israel has claimed that many of the Palestinian casualties were caused by PIJ missiles falling short of Israel and landing in Gaza. Here's Prime Ministerial Spokesperson Karen Hagioff. Tonight, Islamic Jihad terrorists fired a rocket towards Israel, which fell short inside Gaza, hitting a Palestinian home in the Jabalia neighborhood and tragically killing at least four children. There is video documenting the entire thing. There was no Israeli activity in the Gaza Strip, in that area, or at that time. Islamic Jihad is killing Palestinian children in Gaza. One in four rockets fired from Gaza towards Israel lands inside the Gaza Strip. Iran's proxies, including Islamic Jihad, have a long history of hiding behind civilians to target Israeli civilians. The world should be outraged at this terrorist group targeting innocent Israelis and killing innocent Gazans. Israel will continue to stand up to this vicious terrorist organization, which threatens Israelis and Palestinians alike. Meanwhile, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories said this, I condemn Israel's airstrikes in Gaza to allegedly deter Islamic Jihad's possible retaliation for its leader's arrest, as international law only permits the use of force in self-defense, Operation Breaking Dawn is a flagrant act of aggression. Illegal, immoral, irresponsible. Later, she added, Palestinians' right to resist is inherent to their right to exist as a people. An unlawful act of resistance does not make the resistance unlawful. An unlawful act of an unlawful occupation makes the occupation more unlawful and the list on the desk of the ICC prosecutor longer. 
Earlier today, I spoke to Jalal Abuk Hatta, a Palestinian writer and civil servant. The airstrikes began on Friday. It was a surprise, a total surprise to all of us. All we've heard of over the past uh, few months, actually, were Israel trying to um, ease and negotiate with Hamas, perhaps. But there was no sign of any escalation coming. There was no sign that Israel would suddenly go and pound Gaza with all this uh, airstrikes and bombs. And it was a made-up concern by the Israeli media in the, in the past uh, week, let's say, that the Islamic Jihad was uh, planning to do something, but there was no information given. There was nothing. We were all shocked and surprised when Israel started what it led to this all-out uh, conflict over the past couple of days. It was insane. It was violent. Uh, people were dying. Children, the images were just horrific. And people were just like, why was this happening suddenly in, in Gaza? Uh, and it lasted from Friday afternoon till uh, yesterday, Sunday night. Needless violence, unprovoked, uh, senseless, inhumane, uh, targeting civilians, targeting homes. They were saying they're doing an operation to target the Islamic Jihad movement, but actually they're just killing, for example, a leader in the political movement, as well as their family, children that were were killed as well. The Israelis considered them as collateral damage. There was a lot of violence that was senseless over the past couple of days, but we all understood that Gaza is not able to stand on its feet. You mentioned that Israel launched the airstrikes claiming that it was preempting retaliation after the arrest of a Palestinian Islamic Jihad militant in the West Bank. Does that mean that Yair Lapid has given up on the pretense of self-defense in face of rocket fire as a reason or an excuse for airstrikes on Gaza? Absolutely. I'll be very honest in saying that the resistance factions in Gaza have been as restrained as they've ever been rocket fire from Gaza. You know, Gaza is under siege. They have every right to resist the occupation, to resist the the situation they're in. But they've been so restrained over the past year, since the last conflict in May, they've been so restrained that we haven't been seeing as many, for example, the, the incendiary balloons coming out of Gaza. There hasn't been protests. People have been restrained as much as they can, hoping that the Israelis would understand and perhaps ease the situation and perhaps ease the blockade. But that was not the case, actually. Over the past few weeks, the Israelis ramped up the claims that the Islamic Jihad is planning to do something. There were no rocket fire. There was no operations. There was no shooting out of Gaza. uh, Barely anything that is not in response to Israeli aggression initially. So indeed, uh, whatever Yair Lapid has done is based on whatever intelligence they have. They have started an assault on Gaza when the factions in Gaza have been so restrained and have not actually... Uh, fired a single rocket, have not actually harmed any single civilian over the past period. So whatever pretense Sierra Lapid thinks he has, that definitely is not there anymore. The Israeli government is claiming that a large number of the civilian deaths in Gaza is the result of PIJ rocket fire. What do you make of these claims? I have followed very closely one, which is the, the only claim actually they, they have made. There was a situation in Jabalia in northern Gaza Strip where children, five children, were killed in a strike. The, the first moments actually after the news came out, the Israelis were celebrating. I, I saw reports on Twitter, a strike in Jabalia that targeted militants or terrorists, as they called them. But at the same time, when the reports came out that actually the, 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 the casualties are children, there was a huge and like super large spin campaign 
from uh, regular users on Twitter, but as well as the government press office and the IDF the media accounts. They were sharing a video of a barrage of rockets launched from Gaza, where one rocket is straying off the course, and apparently, as they claim, it's landed within Gaza. The video they shared was immediately after the reports of the children being killed in Jabalia. They wanted to muddy the waters, and that initially reminded me of Shirin Abu Akli because the first moments when we heard that Shirin Abu Akli was killed in Jenin past May, the first thing they did was the Israeli Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, that was the year Lapid at the time, they shared a video of a Palestinian gunman uh, with a rifle and firing uh, Israeli soldiers in Jenin refugee camp. The video was intended to, to muddy the waters and to, to um, present it as the, the bullet that killed Shireen was a Palestinian bullet. So they knew the concern that it would come with such a report of casualties being children, same as it with Shireen. They, saw, they know the significance of Shireen and they wanted to muddy the waters initially. And the media usually takes the story from the Israeli media for granted. Uh, basically, people reported uh, for Shireen, people reported that Oh, it could have been a Palestinian bullet that killed her. It took extensive and multiple research and organizations to come out and saying, no, actually, the bullet that killed Shireen was an Israeli bullet. It took two months, actually, for the paper like the New York Times to finally accept that the reports that the Israelis created in the first place were false. I, I take everything the Israeli media uh, pushes, pushes cynically. I take it uh, with, a, with a, uh, a pinch of salt because I know that uh, when they heard that the casualties are children, they wanted to muddy the waters and remove any suspect, suspicion or blame that the Israelis did this. In fact, we all know that there is one party to blame for the last uh, two days' aggress aggression against Gaza. There was one party that actually initiated the assault that started bombing uh, civilian homes and uh, killing people. And there is one party to blame for the, all the casualties that happened in Gaza, including the five children in Jabalia. Northern Gaza Strip. That is Israel. Just a year ago, Israeli strikes destroyed 53 schools in Gaza, six hospitals, 11 clinics, and even the Associated Press building. What has the last year been like in terms of Gazans being able to recover? And how far back does this latest round of strikes set back that project of recovery and rebuilding? Last year's Israeli campaign against Gaza was one of the most cynical, one of the ugliest campaigns. The Israelis came out for revenge against Gaza because Gaza took a stand with Jerusalem back then. The Israelis wanted to show the tough iron fist uh, against Gaza. So the bombing that was launched in last year's campaign targeted residential buildings in mass. It targeted uh, public facilities. It targeted infrastructure. It wanted to cripple the Gaza Strip completely. Um, the, the residential buildings that were targeted, none of them were, had militants, none of them were military targets, none of them were any legitimate target, but they knew that if they uh, destroy residential buildings in areas which are technically somewhat uh, more affluent, they wanted to sow discord for people in Gaza against Hamas at the time. They wanted to show that if Hamas wants to take a bold stance against Israeli aggression in Jerusalem, for example, that uh, we will destroy your schools and your homes so that you know to blame Hamas after the war is over. The campaign was really cynical because it did not target military target. The, the campaign was really targeting civilians in order to pressure them to go against Hamas. And it's been a year 
since this round last year, it's been a year when the Gaza and the Gaza Strip is still very much crippled. Hospitals are still unable to keep up with with the uh, with patients. Uh, the the entire Gaza Strip is still unable to get clean access to water, unable to get uh, constant electricity. Um, the electricity comes comes on and off for a few hours a day. Uh, the transport of goods to uh, to rebuild the Gaza Strip over the past year has been limited and restricted a lot. Hamas uh, officially has been uh, complaining to the mediators and complaining over the past year that Israel is not keeping up its its side of the of the agreement for the ceasefire, which they signed last year. It is stipulated that Israel would open up the borders and would allow for some form of reconstruction. But months have passed and people have forgotten about Gaza. No reconstruction was actually conducted. Uh, no material was brought in. The fuel situation, fuel, electricity, uh, water uh, systems were still down. We're still in a very, very bad shape. And that is the problem that we're facing today. That is the problem is that no one actually helped Gaza stand on its feet. And it's not been a year. And now they've started pummeling the Gaza Strip again and pummeling the civilian population again uh, with their cynical bombing. So it's been a year of really like an exhausting time for everyone in Gaza. It's been a horrible and exhausting time for everyone. And no one wanted this round of fighting to begin in the first place. Monsters, that's all I can say. And my final question is that there will be yet another general election in Israel this coming November. What do you think the likely outcomes are? And what will that mean in terms of future attacks on Gaza and the situation in the occupied West Bank? To us Palestinians, uh, the likely outcome is always going to be worse. Whether it's a right-wing government by Netanyahu and his allies, or whether it's a government by the so-called centrists like Nafat, uh, sorry, like Yair Lapid, like Benny Gantz, I suspect Gantz and Lapid are going to be coming on top. But at the same time, it is very likely that Netanyahu will be a strong contender for the premiership. But when it comes to us Palestinians, all those parties have it for us. All those parties are going to be worse than the one before. Last year, when uh, when Netanyahu finally was unable to create a government and instead in his place came Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, they created a coalition government. They called it the government of change. I was in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem. I was speaking to residents back then. And basically, they were all concerned. They were saying that we are more worried. We are fearing what Naftali Bennett and Lapid's government is going to be like because we know this new government of change will want to prove to the right-wing electorate and they want to prove to the nationalist voters in Israel that they are the ones who are going to def defend Israel. So we, we were worried that the, those so-called centrists are going to be more extreme in their policies targeting the Palestinians, not Netanyahu, actually. The centrists are going to be the more extreme ones targeting our our national identity, targeting our existence and, uh, and entrenching apartheid in all its forms and shapes. And that is what happened last year with Bennett and Lapid. We only saw worsening conditions. And today, with Lapid as the caretaker prime minister, we saw a needless, uh, unprovoked, senseless, violent campaign against Gaza. It lasted two days. I hope it does not carry on for any longer because we cannot tolerate any more of this. Whatever the outcome of this election is, I pray for the best to the Palestinians because we don't have a good choice. There is no good choice for the Palestinians in the Israeli election. It's all bad for us. There's one thing Liz Truss likes more than a photo shoot styled as Margaret Thatcher, 
It's a U-turn, and she has changed her mind yet again. This time, it's about her promise that there'll be no handouts for families struggling with the cost of living crisis this autumn and winter. In an interview with the Financial Times last Friday about how she'd help households facing skyrocketing energy bills, Truss had this to say. Of course, I will look at what more can be done, she said. But the way I would do things is in a conservative way of lowering the tax burden, not giving out handouts. The FT reported, Truss already promised to reverse an increase in national insurance rates introduced by her leadership rival and former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, as well as a temporary removal of green levies from energy bills worth about £150 per household each year. So that's pretty unequivocal. No payments to impoverished households, just tax cuts, which will disproportionately benefit corporations and the already wealthy. And the language used here is pretty revealing as well. By framing state support for cost of living as a handout, the specter of welfare stigma rears its ugly head. Now, that kind of thing might have gone down well in the heyday of Benefit Street and Little Britain. But with average energy bills increasing to over three and a half grand this October, the public mood is very different. Polling published by YouGov for the Times shows that UK voters want the next Prime Minister to prioritise controlling inflation over cutting taxes. This graph says, which of the following do you think is more important for the next Prime Minister to do? Getting inflation under control, 64%. Reduce people's taxes, 17%. Neither, don't know. 20%. So according to this, two-thirds of voters believe the government would be wrong to prioritize tax cuts over tackling the cost of living, which is obviously bad news for the Liz Truss campaign. Rishi Sunak has taken full advantage of Liz Truss's failure to read the room. He wrote in The Sun this morning, Families are facing a long, hard winter with rising bills. Yet Liz's plan to deal with that is to give a big bung to large businesses and the well-off, leaving those who most need help out in the cold. Worse still, she has said she will not provide direct support payments to those who are feeling the pinch most. We need clear-eyed realism, not starry-eyed boosterism. That means bolder action to protect people from the worst of the winter. I have the right plan and experience to help people through. Sun readers can trust me to step in as I've done so before to help those who need it most. Rishi Sunak's polling still languishes behind Liz Truss when it comes to the leadership race. But it's very interesting that despite marketing himself as a hard-nosed deficit hawk to the Tory party membership, he's pitching himself to the public as Captain Furlow, helicopter money hero. And watching their candidate get hauled over coals for the handout remark forced the Trust team to make yet another screeching U-turn. Here's what Liz Trust supporter Penny Mordaunt had to say about it. She's not ruled out uh, all future help. In fact, part of her the reason for her putting an emergency budget forward is to really address some of these issues. But what she has, I think, rightly challenged is the wisdom of taking large sums of money out of people's pockets in tax and then giving some of it back in ever more complicated ways. She's making a general point about the merits of enabling people to keep more of what they earn. And I think that is the right principle. Penny Moore done there claiming that Liz Truss had been a victim of misinterpretation. 
Of course, this isn't the first time that poor Liz has been subject to the indignity of being reminded of her own words. First, it was citing the economist Patrick Minford in her claim that tax cuts would reduce inflation, only to distance herself from the fact that he also said that interest rates would have to go up to 7% to make that happen. And look, this guy is pretty fringe even in right-wing circles. Patrick Minford also claimed that statutory minimum wage would cause unemployment to rise by millions and that a no-deal Brexit would have boosted the UK economy by £135 billion a year. Then there was the regional pay boards idea. Trust claimed that having regional pay boards set civil servants' wages would save £8.8 billion a year. But it turns out that would only work if it applied to the whole of the public sector. So basically, that would mean cutting the pay of nurses, teachers, and social workers outside of London. Great idea. After going public with a policy on Monday last week, it was unsurprisingly scrapped by Tuesday. So you may be wondering why the trust campaign seems to fling out any old policy idea only for her supporters to come scurrying out to clean up the mess they cause. John Stone from The Independent offered this explanation. Liz Trust is probably closer to the free market think tank nexus than any PM we've ever had. Her regional pay policy was based on proposals from the Taxpayers Alliance and Policy Exchange. U-Turn was an early example of what happens when those ideas make contact with reality. I'm joined now by Moya Lothian-McLean. Moya, Liz Trust's supporters insist she's been unfairly interpreted. Do you buy it? Uh, not at all. I don't buy that Liz Truss is being misinterpreted for a second. The truth is that she doesn't really have a clue. As John Stone pointed out, she's got really close links with these think tanks who are pretty fringe and is certainly funneling their ideas into the mainstream, which I think is partly because, as we've talked about, she's so desperate to be seen as this new coming of her idol, Margaret Thatcher, but she wants to put her own special brand of innovation into politics. And what that means is because she lacks, I think, the ability to actually innovate or come up with ideas that really would serve the general populace. Instead, we're left with these really crazy sort of policies and more and more throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks. She seems to have even less of a grasp on economics than I do. And I did humanities at university. So if even Rishi Sunak, Mr. Fiscal Responsibility himself, is unequivocally criticizing her unwillingness to support the public, against the oncoming disaster, then you know it's bad. It's also very rich of Rishi Sunak to say this, as he brought in a tax cut last year for bankers, which will save them billions and take that same amount of the public purse. What I think is most glaring about this race, though, is how disconnected both of these candidates are from the ground. For example, at the weekend, I was out and about and I was sat near this group of pensioners, prime Tory sort of voting base. And they were all talking about how deluded Liz Truss was and that you couldn't trust her as far as you could throw her. And they also spoke about the lack of support and the cost of living crisis. Economic insecurity is high on everyone's agenda. That is what keeps the Conservatives' voting base coming back to them again and again and again. And if Liz Truss can't deal with that, then she will soon enough discover the results of being unable to properly tackle the cost of living crisis at the ballot box. The problem is what kind of damage she might have done in the meantime. So I think these things will come back to bite her. But in the short term, a lot of people will suffer when 
very likely she becomes the next prime minister. Putting tax cuts before controlling inflation is really unpopular with the country, although she's still doing really well with the membership. So do you think that we're going to see the next government's policy agenda effectively being dictated by the libertarian nerds of 55 Tufton Street? Well, it's difficult to say because I think what will happen is is she'll propose these ideas. But as we've seen, there'll be U-turn after U-turn because the Conservatives above all else care about electability. Something that was quite interesting in recent polling about the Conservative membership is that even though they overwhelmingly support Liz Truss to be their next leader, over 50% of those polled in a Times poll said that they didn't think they would win, the next Conservative leader would win an election. So the Conservatives are used to being a winning party. They're seeing that that's sort of slipping away. They're seeing, for whatever reason, the people that they're putting to the forefront of their party are not popular with the general public. Their ideas are not taking root. And people are starting, I think, to drift away. However, recent polling again came out today that said maybe Liz Truss would have a lead over Keir Starmer. So unless something like Labour puts forward a real credible alternative, we could be looking at, once again, people just not turning out to vote and Liz Truss winning by default in the next election. But I think in terms of policy and Tufton Street, these ideas will come through, there'll be a huge backlash and there'll be a U-turn. There'll be some sort of compromise in the middle, which benefits absolutely no one. But I don't think we'll see the unequivocal policy come through for a while, simply because it's so unpopular and because it sounds so bat crap crazy. I mean, I love that we've got a choice between batshit crazy economic policy and no economic policy at all from Keir Starmer. That makes me feel great. Next story. New research has found that the Metropolitan Police strip-searched 650 children over a two-year period. Data shows that of those children, 58% were described by the officer as being black, and 19 out of every 20 were boys. The majority of children strip-searched by the Met were found to be innocent of the suspicions against them, and in almost a quarter of cases, strip searches of young people aged between 10 and 17-year-olds took place without an appropriate adult present, despite this being a requirement under statutory guidance. The research was conducted by the Children's Commissioner, Rachel D'Souza, and she was damning of the data. Between 2018 and 2020, 650 strip searches, intrusive searches, where children are not arrested, it's stop and search, then taken to a police station or home. For one in five of them, we don't even know where they were taken because the data is poor. The 2021 data was so poor I couldn't use it. Um, And in a quarter of those cases of 10 to 17-year-olds being strip searched, um, there wasn't even an appropriate adult. That means no mum, no dad, no carer, that child on their own. And we know how difficult that is for uh, children. Just be clear, what's the law on, on strip searching a child? The law is that an appropriate adult should be there. Regardless. Regardless. Right. And there's a, a racial disparity to this as well, which is also massively concerning. Absolutely. So in 2018, 70% of children who were strip searches, that's 10 to 17 year olds, were black boys. And over the three year period, it's over 50% of children. Now, the data speaks for itself. That's not good enough. About 20% of children in London are, are BAME, are, are black, black and ethnic minority. So for this to be so high is not good enough. Massively overrepresented in strip yeah. searches, massively represented in stop and search as well, but that's something else that we will not talk about right now. And you, you, you got the data from the Metropolitan Police. 
concern that if you look at the other 42 forces, it will be the same story? So what I've decided to do is call for this data from every police authority in the UK. But I'm not just going to do it once. I'm going to keep looking at this data to make sure that it improves and sharing this data. My particular powers as Children's Commissioner mean that any public body has to give me data they hold on children. So I'm going to use that power for this end. And I want to see change. Sorry isn't good enough. In March, a 15-year-old schoolgirl in Hackney known as Child Q was strip-searched without an adult present after being wrongly accused of carrying cannabis. A safeguarding report found that racism had likely been a factor and that the search should never have happened. Four police officers are presently facing gross misconduct cases over the search. And at the time, the Met insisted that what happened to Child Q was an isolated incident. But today's data shows the practice is widespread and with stark racial disparities. The Metropolitan Police released a typically anodyne statement saying that the Metropolitan Police is progressing at pace to work to ensure children subject to intrusive searches are dealt with appropriately and respectfully. We recognise the significant impact such searches can have We have already made changes and continue to work hard to balance the policing needed for this type of search with the considerable impact it can have on young people. We have ensured our officers and staff have a refreshed understanding of the policy for conducting a further search, particularly around the requirement for an appropriate adult to be present. We have also given officers advice around dealing with schools, ensuring that children are treated as children and considering safeguarding for those under 18. More widely, we have reviewed the policy for further searches for those aged under 18. This is to assure ourselves the policy is appropriate and also that it recognises the fact a child in these circumstances may well be a vulnerable victim of exploitation by others involved in gangs, county lines, and drug dealing. So... You're so concerned that children are being exploited that you have to strip them without a parent or guardian present in front of strangers and search their most intimate body parts. It's very much we had to destroy the village to save the village. Just doesn't make sense. It's counterproductive because if you're trying to protect children from exploitation, teaching them that their bodies can be violated at the drop of a hat on the flimsiest of pretexts seems utterly counterproductive to me. And Moya, what's striking here is that lots of these strip searches aren't for weapons. They're for small quantities of drugs like cannabis. And most of the time, the cops don't even find anything. Is the safeguarding case or safeguarding case for child strip searches in utter tatters after this data's come out? I'm glad you put that in quote marks, because I don't know if there even was a safeguarding case for child strip searches. And maybe for strip searches at large. As you mentioned, these stats make for really horrific reading. Strip searching is an incredibly intrusive and violating procedure. It's happened to people I know um, who've been traumatized by it. And the data shows that over half of these strip searches result in no further action, which to me is a rate enough to negate the entire practice. The majority of the children, as we mentioned, being violated in this way, young black boys, so much of policing in this manner is based on perception, perception and suspicion. And those perceptions and suspicions come, they're they're built by the society that is being policed. So when you have a racist society or an institution that is racist, your suspicion 
will be racist. It will be based on racist stereotypes. And also it will be based on stereotypes of anybody who seem to be on the fringes of society, such as the homeless. You will have people who don't have the ability or the language or the knowledge to, you know, say this is against my rights. This is not part of what you should be allowed to do. This is violating me to speak up. People who are disempowered will be on the receiving end of the most brutal and violating types of policing. And it's further evidence to my mind of the really terrible and neglectful way the police are deployed in response to every social issue. Over the last several decades, we've seen the police more and more become sort of the plaster that's put on every idea of social ill or every sort of conflict within different social settings or communities. And that is because cuts have been made to communities so the other resources aren't there. Why do the police need to be strip searching young black boys, especially on wrongful grounds that they possess tiny amounts of cannabis? Whether or not there is that suspicion there, why is it being dealt with by the police, a really violent, brutal force? The psychological damage that that does and how that th- these children, the way it will alienate these kids at a really formative age is far, far would outstrip any sort of positive effect such as, oh, we have found some cannabis on this child that the police get from it. And stop and search in general hasn't led to reductions in youth violence because it is deployed, as I said, based on perceptions, often racist, and it's been placed in the hands of the police. Meanwhile, the factors that contribute to things like knife crime, from education cuts to social media, are not able to be properly assessed and strategized for because of these lack of funding. So instead, it's all dumped on the police. And even people within the police would say, we cannot cope with this. We cannot deal with this. We're doing the best we can, but the best they can is never going to be good enough under these circumstances. We need resources for these communities so that every social issue isn't placed upon the shoulders of the police because they will respond in the only way they know how with brutality. In over half of strip searches of children, those children are totally innocent of the suspicion that was levied against them. And as was pointed out by Rachel D'Souza, strip searches don't take place after an arrest. It's a stop and search. So what that tells me is that as a policing tactic, it fails under its own metrics. It is not an effective policing tactic. It's not helping you identify or stop crime. So if you're still doing it, and it's something which is very labor intensive, it's something which also opens you up to gross misconduct charges. If you pick on the wrong person and they've got an ability to take on a case and take it forward, why continue strip searching kids? Well, it's because it's a tool of harassment and intimidation. It is about saying to people, particularly young, working class, racial minorities, that their bodies are not their own. They could be violated and humiliated at any moment. And that for me is what's so disgusting about the story about strip searches. The humiliation is not a side point to the strip search. I actually think in many cases it is the very purpose of the strip search. Moving on to the next story. The don't pay movement is growing with each passing day. With energy bills set to rise by 70% in October, the average household could be facing a bill of nearly £3,400. And then it will go up again in January. So far, nearly 100,000 people have joined, don't pay, and pledged to just stop paying their energy bills from October the 1st. It's in that context that Jonathan Brearley, 
CEO of energy regulator Ofgem, appeared on Radio 4's Today programme. Here's what he said. Do you have any sympathy with the kind of campaigns that are happening now, people threatening not to pay their energy bills? I think nearly 80,000 people have signed up for the Don't Pay campaign. So I know everyone is extremely worried about paying their energy bill, but absolutely I would not encourage anyone to join a campaign like this for two reasons. First of all, it will drive up costs for everyone across the board. And secondly, if you're facing difficulty in paying your bill, the best thing you can do is get in touch with your energy company, talk to them, make sure you've got access to all the help and support that's available so you're not paying more than you need to and get access to wider help with debt advice, for example, if you need it. So I wouldn't encourage anybody to, to withhold their paying their bill because that just damages things further and it will impact them personally. So keep paying your bills and phone up the energy company and make sure you have access to all the help and support that's available to you. There isn't any fucking support, Jonathan. That's the problem. So it's a bit rich for a man on £300,000 a year to tell millions facing fuel poverty to basically keep paying their bills no matter what, so that bills for richer people who can afford them don't go up. That's not the kind of solidarity we're into, Moya. It's kind of hilarious to see the CEO of Ofgem running scared. Do you think that this advice is coming from a good place? He's genuinely concerned by the idea of customers being hit with big reconnection bills, or is he actually quite worried about the sort of collective leverage that's being exercised by don't pay supporters? I would say it's the latter. The process to be hit with big reconnection bills is very, very slow, and it's very, very rare you can get your energy cut off. As if you read in the interviews with Don't Pay organizers, they will outline why the strategy is one that they are taking. And Ofgem as a body is not one I would ever say has been on the lookout for consumer protection. It's really interesting about the way that they've been framed. The price cap is really new. It was brought into being in 2019. It was meant to limit the rates that suppliers could charge customers for their energy. And it was introduced after concerns about fuel poverty, but typically for any sort of policy that has been introduced by the Tories to supposedly protect consumers, it doesn't really do that at all. What it instead does is just notify consumers that their bills are about to go up and lets energy companies know that don't worry, your profits are protected. So when it came in, the average cost of energy was on a standard variable tariff was about 1k a year, just over that. And since then, the price cap has inched up and up. And up. It's predicted, as you mentioned earlier in the show, to be over £3,000 in October for yearly energy. Meanwhile, we're seeing these record profits for energy companies. They're not protecting consumers, they're protecting profits. So now they've said the cap is also going to be adjusted quarterly instead of twice a year to match market volatility. Why, if you're an independent regulator, are you matching market volatility? That, that is only going to help protect the profits of big energy companies. That doesn't protect consumers on the ground at all. It doesn't benefit households, instead allows energy companies to pass on higher wholesale prices and maintain their profits, as we've seen with things like BP and Shell, who are absolutely laughing all the way to the bank. So in short, no, I do not think that Jonathan really has any interest in helping out consumers or advising them on the best tack. And I think he is sincerely worried about the disruption that a don't pay campaign could bring. These kind of people, they have a real stake in institutions and they might think they're acting out of the goodness of their heart or you could get into big trouble. But people are already in big trouble. Six million households are going into fuel poverty and desperate times really do call for these desperate measures. So in short, I would really assess 
where this person's interests lie before taking his words without any pinches of salt. Well, look, if you're feeling bitterly disappointed about the fact that Jonathan Brearley, CEO of Ofgem, isn't on your side, perhaps this last story will cheer you up. There's another exciting campaign afoot. The current government is doing next to nothing about the cost of living crisis. Millions of people are expected to be plunged into fuel poverty in October. That's if they're not in it already. Not to mention the rise in food poverty as inflation impacts stagnant wages. And it's not just the current government. The two contenders for our next prime minister have both been stingy about the kind of support they intend to provide. And Labour's big idea is taking the 5% VAT off of energy bills when they've gone up by over 50% since the start of this year already. A poll conducted by Public First shows that more than half of Britons think that the government could do more to help with the cost of living crisis, but are choosing not to. That's more than half of the population who feel completely abandoned by the political classes. So, who can people turn to for help in the face of a government that's paralysed by internal distractions and an opposition that seems pretty much to have checked out? The answer, as always, is people with a history of taking care of ordinary working people, trade unionists and the odd properly left-wing politician. The Enough is Enough campaign launched today. Take a look at this. People are fed up with the way they're treated at work. We need to turn that mood into real organisation on behalf of the working class. Enough is enough. There's always another crisis and it's always workers who pay the price. We've suffered the biggest pay squeeze in history and workers become all about working harder and faster for less. And now they want you to pay for it all again. Well, it's time somebody else paid the price. Things can't go on like this. Record profits for big business, record number of billionaires, record wealth for the top 10%. But life is getting harder for everyone else. You always make the sacrifices, yet they always reap the rewards. None of this is inevitable. It's a political choice, your need or their greed. So it's time everyone in this country who's got a rotten landlord, who's got a low wage, who's got in-work benefits, who's going to a food bank, who can't get a doctor's appointment, who can't get housing. It's about time we all stood up together and said, enough is enough. This cost of living crisis affects us all. This is not just about real workers or cleaners. Posties, engineers or call centre workers. Or nurses or teachers or firefighters. It's about you and every workplace and every community across this country. It's time for a campaign that draws the line. It's time to say enough is enough. Fair pay, affordable bills, enough to eat and a decent place to live. These things are not luxuries. They're your rights. This is a campaign to bring people together for a real pay rise to slash energy bills, to end food poverty and for decent homes for all, and to finally tax the rich and big business. If you agree, share this video, spread the word. And sign up today at wesayenough.co.uk. We can't be divided. We need everybody campaigning for a better deal. We will be organising rallies. We will be forming community groups and we will be on picket lines. We're going to be standing up for ourselves. We're going to fight. We're not all in this together. We never have been. The people that are in this together are working class people who've been mugged for far too long. It's time to say enough is enough. 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 enough. It's time to channel anger into action. Enough is Enough will be campaigning on five core demands. 
Our five demands to tackle the crisis. One, a real pay rise. Two, slash energy bills. Three, end food poverty. Four, decent homes for all. Five, tax the rich. Sounds good to me. The campaign website actually crashed earlier today as so many people were trying to sign up. And so far, 75,000 people have signed up. And that's just in one day. Moya, Mick Lynch says it's time for real organization. So what do you reckon that might look like in the context of this campaign? Well, I imagine it would follow the same sort of organizational structures that are present in the more militant, and I don't mean that as an insult, by the way, for those who are not aware of the use of the word militant in connection with unions, more militant unions like RMT and CW. What's interesting is if you look at the Enough is Enough website, it's supported not by RMT directly, but by the CWU, the Communication Workers Union, and ACORN, and a couple of campaigns like Food Bank campaigns, and Ian Byrne MP is individually named, which is really funny. But I imagine what they're going to do is try and take that organizing approach that they've done with successful balloting, but instead bring it out to workplaces. So you build up a raft of organizers who then can work in their local areas. And that would be the most obvious approach I'd imagine they're going to do when it comes to organizing here. I think what's interesting is the obstacles they're going to face is IRL organizing. If you talk to someone from the Communication Workers Union, particularly about you know organizing workplaces like EE recently, which didn't quite get over the line in terms of their strike action ballots, then they said, you know, we mounted this huge operation. It was really successful in organizing for the first time, but it didn't quite have enough um, momentum or enough organizers, or enough people because of their fears of losing their jobs, et cetera, to get on board. So they'll be looking for ways to overcome those barriers. They'll have to do a big raft of political education. There's a lot of people right now who there's uh, there's anger to harness, but they're not necessarily tuned into politics. They may be feeling really disenfranchised. They may be feeling really out of the loop, as it were. I think people in this country are more politically aware than ever in the sense that they know what's going on around them, but they feel more demoralized than ever in that they feel they don't really have power or agency to change that. I was at a talk the other day with um, Aditya Chakraborty and he was asked a question about whether Britain is due its own uh, Gilets Jones movement. He said that probably yes, that that is something that's very likely to happen. I know that the feeling is out there that can be tapped into. The issue is whether this campaign is going to have the reach, and I hope it does, but whether it will have the reach to get there first before more malign forces do. Because what we've seen in the past, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic is Loads and loads of people turned out on like anti-lockdown protests where you saw people and it turned into basically an anti-government protest. I went down to have a look at some of these things and I've said this before, but I've never seen such a cross section of different demographics in one place, which was really upsetting, to be honest, because it showed that people are there and ready to be mobilized, but they are being harnessed by forces that are usually organized by the far right, you know, whatever your position on lockdown, etc. A lot of those protests, if you went behind the scenes, you could see that the organizers were often far right and linked to other deeper conspiracy theory things like, you know, anti-5G, the aliens are stealing our children, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. There was lots of also anti-Semitism present within those rallies when you dug under the surface a little bit. So what I'm worried about is that the amazing campaigns that are going on right now will not be able to reach people who are perhaps offline or in different circles, because something We've seen quite a lot is that there, you know, you have your bubbles, you have your social media bubbles, you have your digital bubbles. So if this campaign can get offline and it can establish those routes early on, 
it's got a really good chance. The same thing with the don't pay. But something about the don't pay map that interested me is when I looked at it last, it was a lot of Southeast signups already. So it needs to be able to branch out into these areas around the country, these regions, the really neglected ones, particularly the people who are offline, the people in the call centers. And hopefully because of the union involvement, it will be able to do that where other campaigns may not. But what I'd also like to see is whether it attracts support from other unions, ones who perhaps more have more of a service model, because then you've really got the momentum going if you've got these more nervous unions signing up to it. But it remains to be seen. And I think the main thing is hope. Keep an eye on it. Any sort of like positive action is something to get behind at this stage because we haven't really got any other options. I'm really interested to see what the organizing model is going to be. And this isn't me saying, and I secretly think there's one good organizing model and everyone should do that or they're wrong. I mean, there's so many ways you can mobilize people into an effective political force. But I'm curious to see, is this going to be a rally-centric model, where the idea is you get an expression of public anger out onto the streets and you've got some kind of coordinated, you know, protest and rally movement all around the country, is the idea that you start linking up different workers' struggles. So you start thinking about how can you time strike action so that your bus strike coincides with your rail strike, coincides with your postie strike, coincides with your teacher strike, so on and so forth. Is this going to be something else where you start trying to link together different struggles which are outside of different sectors? So, of course, ACORN do an awful lot of stuff around housing. So is there going to be some kind of efforts to link up many of the tenants campaigns which are concentrated in big cities to worker struggles which take place outside of that? Or is this going to be the kind of thing where you saw with the anti-austerity movement between 2010-2015 There weren't immediate wins for the anti-austerity movement. You couldn't really say, okay, and it had this direct impact on cuts to welfare or PIP or fitness to work assessments. But it obviously created the political backdrop, which made the Corbyn moment possible. So you can't always measure the impact of something straight away. It comes along later. So I'm really interested to see what happens. I mean, Moya, do you think that this is also going to give a little bit of energy towards, you know, the remaining left-wingers inside the parliamentary Labour Party? Because while they've been saying good things on their own, they haven't seemed like a coordinated force, particularly since Corbyn lost the whip. I think it's an interesting question. We very, At the moment in that video, we only saw Zara Satani, we've got obviously Ian Byrne as well, name-checked, but there haven't been any, as far as I saw, sort of any other parliamentary Labour Party left-wingers who've been specifically name-checked in the campaign and it could be because they're sitting back waiting to see how it shakes out before they sign up. It could also be as well some of the ones we would expect to be really on board are tactically taking a backseat because of the way that their names may have been dragged through the mud over the past couple of years. You know, the likes of John McDonnell, for example, may not be ostensibly getting involved because he knows that this movement is something that he can't be front and centre for because of the way he's been misrepresented in the press. So I was I was thinking about that as well. In terms of what you talk about, the organising in that sense, I, it, it makes complete sense to me that they would obviously join up all these different struggles. That's the message we've been hearing again and again and again from the likes of Dave Ward, Eddie Dempsey, Mick Lynch, Rohan Khan, who's the national chair of ACORN, that's their bread and butter. It's linking these different class-related struggles. It's saying, you know, things like racism is a worker struggle. These are all connected things. 
so I can see that message being drilled home further. And from comments that have been made to me behind the scenes by people who are now involved in this, that is something they've had their eye on. And I know they want to get other unions also signed up to this movement, although I wasn't sure what they were referring to when they first talked about it to me. So I would imagine it's a joined up form of organizing and I imagine it won't just be rally based. It's interesting that Tribune involved, obviously Tribune, you know, socialist media from 1937, and they've been throwing a lot of rallies recently with RMT. So I'd imagine that they take care part of the sort of bombastic on the streets, we're going to gather here. And then you have the unions and the people with the experience of organizing from the ground up doing that workplace organizing, doing that on-street organizing. But as I said, see if they get enough people signed up to be able to take it offline the way that Don't Pay is trying to get people to give out leaflets, etc. I have a stack of them sitting beside me waiting to be given out. But in terms of the Parliamentary Labour Party, I really don't know. And it's also hard to say because this feels like an alternative. I almost don't want to think of the Parliamentary Labour Party as being uniquely connected to this. Like I see Zara in it, Zara Sultana. I'm like, great, Zara Sultana. But I, I see her almost as away from the Parliamentary Labour Party's ethos at this point because of the leadership, because of what the ideologies that they are promoting in the mainstream. And they've made it very clear, the leadership at least, that they don't want to be involved with campaigns like this. And I think what this campaign is going to try and do is show that the appetite is there and then offer them the chance to get involved. You saw Mick Lynch earlier in the summer saying, you know, he, he was at the RMT rally that Tribune organised and he was saying, I want Labour to get into power. I want them to do this and I want to do that. Maybe that was just, you know, being polite, good PR. But I think at the end of the day, there's probably an investment there where they want Labour to realise the error of their ways, as it were. Um, whether they'll do that is remains to be seen. But if they see there's mass support for this sort of campaign and it's elect and it's electable, the key word for the current parliamentary Labour Party leadership, then yeah, they probably will try and get on board. I just can't trust them as far as I can throw them. But in a strategic way, then maybe enough is enough want to ally with them. But they're trying to put proof in the pudding first before they take it to them and say, here, have a slice. That was a very long metaphor. (laughs) Don't Pay's got one target, which is the energy companies. And then enough is enough is trying to tap into the politicization, which is being driven by the cost of living crisis and also being driven by this sort of uptick in industrial action and thinking about how does that become a more generalized political project with these five demands. So I'm going to be really interested in seeing how this plays out. And of course, we'll cover it here on Navara Media. Thanks for all of you joining us this evening. This show will be back on Wednesday with Aaron Bastani. I've been Ash Zarka covering for Michael Walker, who will be back on Friday. You've been watching Tiski Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.